Thanks to the worship team for leading us in worship this morning. We always appreciate the great job our worship teams do in uh, in leading us in worship. It's not really what I'm uh, going to talk about this morning, but it is Earth Day, so I thought I would at least recognize it. Uh, just didn't want to let this day go by without uh, uh, without acknowledging that uh, today is Earth Day. And uh, just a reminder there, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So that's our reminder of stewardship. And it does, ha- it does in some way go along with our theme for this month of discipleship. Uh, discipleship and looking after our created world. And so there is uh, something important about it. We shouldn't uh, just dismiss Earth Day. But that's not really what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, what I do want to talk about is the idea that Jesus is Lord. And uh, John MacArthur years ago wrote this saying uh, about uh, an issue. He wrote and he said, The gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. A call to faith and calling to yield to Christ's authority. Giving in to Christ's authority. He was talking about the context of this statement is, uh, is a number of years ago there was something called the Lordship uh, controversy or Lordship discussion. Those of you who have been around church for a few more years than, uh, than others might remember this one. And the idea for a while there, there was some teaching going around that said that you could accept Jesus as your Savior but He wouldn't necessarily have to be your Lord. So there was, it was almost like there was two decisions that you made. You made a decision to accept Him as your Savior, and then you could decide or not to accept Him as Lord. And people responded to that and said, no, uh, you accept Jesus as Savior and Lord is a better way to think about it. Not two separate decisions, but you cannot say Jesus is my Savior, but He is not Lord of my life. That's not really a valid statement. And so, uh, there was a number of people who wrote about this, and John MacArthur was one who wrote strongly against that idea and said, you have to, uh, the go- and this is where he comes to this point of saying, the gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. Yielding to Christ's authority, putting yourself under Christ's authority is all part of the gospel. And if we eliminate part of that and we say we can just accept Christ as Savior, but He doesn't have to be Lord of our life, we're preaching. We're following a different, wrong gospel. And so this is uh, what he was suggesting. But it's interesting, he, does, he puts it in these words of yielding to Christ's authority. This is a key part of discipleship, is that we yield ourselves to Christ's authority in our lives. That Every aspect of our life comes under Christ's authority. Christ calls us to Him and He wants us to follow Him. And part of that means doing what He says and what He asks us to do. And that might be the hardest part of all of discipleship. Because we don't like to be under anybody's authority. There's something about us <coughs> excuse me, that just says we don't like to be under authority. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about uh, this license plate in this uh, the state of New Hampshire. And their uh, state motto is live free or die. 
you know, that this is so important. I can't be under anything. I'm, this is so important that I'm going to die for my freedom. Now, of course, they're talking in a political sense here. But it, we, we hold on to that. We don't want to be under anybody's authority. We want to be free. Free to do what we want. We want to win. To be on top. We want to be victorious. We want to be in control of things. And this is where the Lordship issue comes into it. That we want Christ as our Savior. Yes, we want Jesus Christ to be our Savior so that we have that hope. That hope of eternal life. We have Him as a Savior because we know we need to be saved from our sins. But we don't really maybe want Him to be Lord of our lives. That might be uh, part of our problem. So as we consider discipleship one last time here in this month, uh, as we look at our church's five visions and we think about discipleship uh, through the month of April, we do have one more week of April, but we're doing something else next week. Um, We do want to think about discipleship in terms of Jesus as Lord. And so as we consider discipleship and we consider this idea, Jesus is Lord, uh, for one last time here as, this look at, uh, as we look at discipleship, we find when we look in the New Testament, that term, Lord Jesus Christ, putting those things together, Lord Jesus Christ, is used by Luke. We find him in that phrase in Paul, Peter, James, and Jude. In fact, about 90 different verses in the New Testament as they're referring to Jesus Christ, call, use that term, Lord Jesus Christ, specifically. And so it's not just a one-off idea we find in the New Testament, or just uh, scattered here and there, but it's an idea that runs through the whole New Testament. This idea of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that should flow in the Gospel of our lives as well. That idea that Jesus is Lord. We say Jesus is Lord. We yield to Him and our lives match what He has asked us to do. And so as we consider discipleship uh, today, as we consider this, uh, this idea of Jesus is Lord in terms of discipleship, we remind ourselves that a disciple is a follower of Jesus. And that's someone who lives, like, lives life like Jesus would have. And we, as we think about that, we consider Paul's words to the church in to Ephesus. And so we consider, uh, look here at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 13. And Paul writes and he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also 
in the in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. May God bless the reading of his word. So here is Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he's trying to get across some ideas here about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he starts out in an interesting way. He starts out just being very thankful for them. And he uh, responds to their faith. He hears about their faith. And he responds to that in a prayerful way, in a thankful way. So he hears about uh, their decision to follow Christ. And we read about Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 19. We read about him being in Ephesus. So he was there and he actually stayed with there with the church, teaching, preaching, training, helping people to understand what the Gospel was all about. And he was there for almost two years. And then we read later in Acts chapter 20, the Ephesian elders, the elders from the church in Ephesus, come to him as he's traveling to Jerusalem and they meet with him. And he gives the time. He makes the time. And they make the effort to come and they meet because they are so close together. They're so important to each other. We also read in Acts chapter 19 that as Paul is there in Ephesus, we also read that the Gospel has spread throughout Asia. And he says all the residents of Asia had heard the words of Paul. So while Paul was there in Ephesus, many were coming to hear him. Many were uh, coming to hear what he had to say. And presumably people were going out and sharing the word. And and, uh, we don't know exactly what was happening then. But it's clear that Paul's word were having an impact on the city and not just the city, but the whole region around there. And so while he was there, certainly some had come to faith, but now now they are writing to him. Or he's right, sorry, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And he must have heard about what was going on there and that people were continuing to come to faith. And so people were doing what they're supposed to be doing. He had he himself, Paul himself had instructed them, and now they in turn are going and taking the gospel, the good news, to others who need to hear it as well. And he write, and he hears this. He hears about this, that others are turning, others are having faith, are coming to Christ in faith. Paul responds, he's thankful for them. He's praying for them. The two years that he spent in Ephesus is not going to waste. And so he responds to them, to hearing about them, uh, hearing about their faith with thankfulness and with prayer. We read about this, this attachment that they have to each other in Acts chapter 20 when Paul and the Ephesian elders meet Uh, They meet, they discuss, and as they're parting ways, the Bible describes them that they knelt down together, they prayed together, they embraced and they wept. This was the kind of relationship Paul had with the leaders there. He knew them and was connected to them. And so when he hears about their faith, he responds uh, with thankfulness and prayer. And then uh, what does his prayer request look like? Well, the first one is quite simple that they would know Him better. That they would know God better. Not Paul, but they would know God better. 
This is a, a very simple request that Paul makes uh, to God for, on behalf of those in the church in Ephesus. They would know Him better. And I'm sure he's thinking that if they know God more and more, if they grow in a deeper and deeper relationship with God, the problems that they may have, the questions that they have, the challenges they face in life would be sorted out fairly easily. And so Paul prays for a deeper and deeper knowledge for the believers there in Ephesus uh, of God Himself. And so that's he's praying to God for God to help them know God better. And so part of know, us knowing God better too is that God has to be involved in that process. That we simply can't force ourselves to know God better, but God has to be at work in our lives. We have to stop and let Him come to work in our lives. And, uh, and then we can begin to know Him uh, better and better. Paul also makes, you see there, a reference to the Trinity. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, giving you the Spirit. So we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all there uh, just in that one verse. Paul is, is conveying a prayer request, but he's also conveying a theological truth in that as well. And then Paul gives a second request for them. And this is kind of a, an expansion of the first. It it's, goes along in a similar vein. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. And so he's praying again for the eyes of their heart to be opened. And we were singing about that earlier, uh, asking God to open the eyes of our heart that we would see Him. And so that, that song is actually from this very verse right here. And that was this that verse. Or this verse is the basis uh, for that uh, for that song. And so this is how they're going to. He's praying that they would know God better, that that, that somehow the eyes of their hearts uh, would be opened. And of course, he doesn't. Our heart doesn't have eyes, and he's not really talking about our heart. It's a it's a metaphor. It's an expression that that says just that that the very center of our being would be opened to see God. That it wouldn't just be an intellectual or a superficial knowledge of God, but that it would be a knowledge of God that reaches deep into our heart, into the very center of our being, into the very core of our who we are as a person. God would be in there. And we would see God from the very core of who we are. We could see God. And that's what He wants for the believers in Ephesus. That's what he's praying for them, is that they would know that. They would see that. And so Paul is asking, uh, asking God for a way for them to know God more. It's kind of interesting uh, as, we, as we look at this passage. And we, um, we, we see that Paul is asking God for the Ephesian church to know God better. You would think that they that that you might look at that and say we might look at that today and say they had Paul. Like do they how much more do they need? 
You know, when we read Paul's letters, we can read uh, any of them. But just in particular, we can read the book of Romans again and again and again, and we can continue to uncover deep theological truths as we ponder this. And we think this is the Apostle Paul who wrote this. Surely that's enough. If they had apost- if, if, if Apostle Paul was here with us today and came to our church, would we, what would we say? Well, you know, Paul, I think we've heard enough from you. Let's hear from someone else. No, you'd say Paul is here. We want to hear him. We want every chance we get, we want Paul to be speaking. And yet Paul is requesting that, that God would open their heart, God would open their soul to hear from God directly. It's not even enough for them to have the Apostle Paul there. And so he prays for them. This is his concern for them, that they know God more and more. And so he, he prays for three specific things here. As he prays that the eyes of their heart might be opened to uh, receive something. The first is that uh, the hope to which He has called us. The future hope that we have. And so He says, uh, he, says that the, he asks that the eyes of their heart would be opened in order that they might know the hope to which He, to what God has called us to. The hope of eternal life. This is what, what we need to understand. This is one of the, the, the three things that Paul highlights here that we need to understand. is that hope of eternal life that we have. A hope that one day all this will be gone and we will be in a place in the very presence of God. We will be in a place where there's no more tears or mourning or suffering or pain. No more crying. No more death. No more hunger and justice or hatred. That's the hope we hang on to for that place. No more of those things. But this is the hope that we have that someday we will be in a better place. And and Martin Luther King Jr. made reference to this when he said, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. He had that dream. He had the dream of the hope that God holds out for us. A hope for a better place where that injustice and and racism, that judgment can be put aside. And that's the hope Paul has that He wants us, each one of us, to experience. That hope that keeps us going in tough times. And so he prays that the church in Ephesus, the people there, would know that hope. That's his prayer for us too. That we would know that hope. And then he says the the riches of uh, His glorious inheritance in His holy people. Paul prays that the people would know about the riches that await them. The inheritance that's there, the thing we're going to uh, to receive that's waiting in His holy people. It's not the earthly uh, inheritance of wealth or fame or fortune, but the fact of, etern- of the riches of eternal life with God Himself. Nothing can compare with that. And He wants us to know that. 
He wants us to know that inheritance. And then the last thing that He wants us to know is that He wants us to know Christ's power. His incomparably great power for us who believe. Power over darkness and sin and death. Power to do beyond what we can do in ourselves. Power beyond what we can do in our own strength and wisdom. Power that comes from God. And He wants us each to know that as well. He goes on and He he then expands that power. And so the next part of the passage, he, He explains what that power is. He wants us to be sure that we understand exactly what that power looks like. What that power does. What that power is able to do. And so he talks about this power, the power of, of, of Christ, the power of God in our lives. And he says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. This is a power that can even overcome death itself. This is the same power that, he's, that Paul prays that we would have. That Paul wants believers to have. That power that can raise Christ from the dead that goes on and he says that this power seated Him, seated Christ at the right hand in the heavenly realms. He exalts Christ. This power lifts Christ up and puts Him on the throne. It says this power exalted Him, exalted Christ above every rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked. Do you get a sense of the power that Paul is talking about here? He's, he's rolling these images one on top of another. This is power that raised Christ from the dead. Power that seats Him at the right hand of God. Power that is over everything and all things. And even exalted above all time. He is exalted uh, not just in the present age, but also in the one to come. This is Christ exalted in the highest place. Christ exalted in every way possible. This is what Paul is talking about. That kind of power that needs to be there in the lives of the believers. And then he says, finally in this passage, Christ and His church. In Christ and His church, he makes this comment and he says, and God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. And so of all that dem- the demonstrations of power, above all of that, Christ is the head of the church. The church is His body. We are the church. You and I, those who have accepted Christ as our Savior, we are the church. Christ is over us. Christ is the head of us. Peter says Christ is the living stone and we are also living stones to be built up into a spiritual house, not a physical one. The building around us here is not the church, but we are the church. This building around us is a place for the church to meet, but it is not the church. We are the church. We are the ones who have been built up, who are being built up, who are those living stones making a living, growing organism that we call the church. And Christ is our head. Or is He? 
Is Jesus Lord of our lives? Is He really head over us as the church? How would we know that? How would it show? How would we see that reflected in the ways that we live our lives, in the ways that we run our church? Do we see Jesus as Lord? Is it enough? And let me just throw out some questions here. Is it enough that we just pray at the beginning of a meeting and at the end of one? Does that make Jesus Lord? Or are we looking for Jesus to lead us in every decision that we make? Are we really, is our heart really attuned to Him that we would see Him as Lord in our lives, as Lord in the church, as head of the church? These are some questions that we need to ask. And there's a group, a mission group called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And the founders of Youth with a Mission came up with this graphic here. And they look and it, it, they look at it, and they looked at this idea of Jesus as Lord, and they thought about it and, and thought about how is Jesus Lord? What are the areas where Jesus needs to be Lord? And they list them there: the government, in our education, our family, in the media, in our church, in commerce and science, in arts and entertainment. And just looked and said, in our lives, we can divide our lives into these seven spheres of influence. Seven spheres in which, we, in which we live our lives. In our business world, in our education, in our school, in our family, in our church. All these different ways. And they encourage those who are part of YWAM to consider, is Jesus Lord of your life in all of these areas? Maybe we do well in, in some areas but not in others. Maybe we do well in making Jesus Lord of our lives in terms of our church life, but what about the the media we expose ourselves to? What about our interactions with the government or or the education that we get? Is Jesus Lord in all these areas of our lives? Is Jesus really Lord over everything? This is what discipleship is is about, is, is making Jesus Lord of our lives. In saying, yes, I submit to Him. He is head of the church. I submit to Him. He is over me. He has authority over me. I submit to Him in all these areas of my life. Some of them may be easy to give over to God. Some are much more difficult. Some of them we, we can really struggle with. We struggle, perhaps, with our finances to, to give our, our, our finances over to God and say, God, uh, whatever happens, I'm trusting You. Just on our way to church here this morning, we were listening to, uh, uh, to Praise 106.5 and, and there was a guy on there giving testimony about how he was swindled out of, uh, of $100,000 by a friend and after that had happened, his mentor came along beside him and said, don't let this be a root of bitterness that grows up in you. You can always make more money, but don't let that bitterness of that event poison you. Because Jesus is Lord. And let me extend that to say Jesus is Lord over even our finances. And even when, when mistakes are made and we lose money, we don't uh, fixate on those things. But we trust God. And we make Jesus. We put Jesus in charge of all of it. 
It's a hard thing to do to let Jesus be in charge of all these things. We trust God. We let go of our, of our plans. And sometimes in big and small ways, we have to give these over to Jesus. And it's a, a lesson that we, that we need to learn. I know when I was on the mission field, one of the things I did was plan and teach at conferences around uh, different parts of the country. And when you're planning those, you, you do your very best to, to put everything in order, to make sure you had a place to stay when you were there, that there was a meeting venue that was going to be ready, that all the, all, everything was in, was in order. And sometimes you'd have some help locally to help you do that, but a lot of it was done by phone and just uh, connecting with people. And after a while of doing those and realizing that very, it was very often those things didn't really go the way you'd planned, that you'd end up starting late, that the people wouldn't come until the day after you thought they were supposed to be there, that you wouldn't have as much time as you thought, that who knows, all kinds of things would happen. And so you'd have to just sort of sit back and say, Jesus, you're Lord over this. Because it would drive you crazy if you, if, if you watched all your plans kind of fall apart on you. And, and having to adjust on the fly. And, you'd, and in the end, I learned just to sit back and say, Jesus, You're Lord over this. Somehow You're in control. I'm going to do what I can, but I'm not going to try and, and control everything because I can't, because I know it won't. And when things don't happen, sit back and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over all this. Jesus is Lord over the chaos that my life might be in as I'm sitting there trying to reorganize a teaching plan on the last minute. Jesus is Lord. And it's not easy. I can tell you from experience that's not easy to do that. To, to say in that moment of chaos, Jesus is Lord. But it's something that we need to do. It's something that we need to try and do as we grow in our uh, in, in being a disciple, and being a follower of Jesus, this is something that we need to try and do. Oswald Chambers wrote some harsh words in uh, his book, his famous book, and I'm sure many of you have it, and it's called My Utmost for His Highest. He says, the reason some of us are such poor specimens of Christianity is because we have no almighty Christ. We have Christian attributes and experiences, but there is no abandonment to Jesus Christ. No abandonment to Jesus Christ. What a wonderful picture he gives of abandonment to Jesus Christ. Giving up control. Making Jesus Lord. And saying, Jesus, You are Lord. I abandon myself to You. I think that was a wonderful picture of what... Uh, what uh, even what Paul is talking to us about. Being abandoned to Jesus Christ. Giving Him over. Letting Him be Lord of our lives. And so as we think about discipleship for this month, we think about Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of my life. That's a key part, a goal of discipleship, is getting us to the point where we can say, Jesus is Lord. And so I want us today to think about that. Where is Jesus Lord of my life? Where do I need to grow in this area? 
Where do I need to change? What do I need to give over to Him? Which one of those seven spheres of my life is maybe not where God wants it to be and I need to give it to Him? And we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your work in us. We thank You for Your Spirit that gives us life, that gives us breath, gives us hope. We pray that You would help us listen to Your Spirit speak to us. Help us to respond to You. To respond to Your call and say, Jesus is Lord in my life. Lord, help us to be abandoned to Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen.